Welcome to Inside Ulster, the rugby podcast from the Bell Tale, with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendrick. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. Johnny, I'm amazed you're here this week. I mean, all the travel disruption that Ulster had at the weekend, you were heading over to, to Manchester to sail, somehow you still made it back. My travel was actually completely dead on. Like I got the flight that I was always intending to get and got the flight back that I was always in, intending to get. And I think we were delayed about maybe half an hour while they de-iced the plane in uh, in Manchester. I was pretty worried that uh, we were going to be grounded in Manchester rather than getting stuck in Belfast before the game, you know. You seem to be the only person who didn't have the travel disrupted from Leinster to Ulster to uh, countless other teams who were trying to travel over the weekend. You seem to be the only one who's managed to get away with it. Yeah, like that's uh, the beauty of uh, doing everything last minute, Adam. So I uh, had always intended to fly over in the morning of the game and that seemed to be the only flight to Manchester that actually went for about uh, 36 hours. I'm sure you're very glad you went in the end. Thrilled. <laughs> Thrilled. <laughs> You know, I, as you know, I like to take off new stadiums, so uh, it was a new one for me. So the there was that. Did you get a sale mug? I did. I did. The mug collection's actually getting on wheelie now. It's uh, too many for the cupboard. I think I'm gonna have to take a few out of rotation. Uh, starting to force other mugs out of the cupboard, which that's when you know you've started to get to the wrong spot. Yeah. But, uh, People always look at me funny whenever I use the Saris mug anyway, so maybe a few of the less popular teams can uh, can fall away. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Inside Ulster, everyone. Um, it is just myself and Johnny this week. Neve is off again, and you'll probably guess by the uh, audio quality, but we are back on Zoom this week just due to, well, I suppose reasons that we will discuss a, a little bit later on, and we are recording on a Wednesday morning instead of a Tuesday afternoon, but... I guess that has also helped because it means we have uh, Ulster's press conference to discuss as well after, let's say, to put it mildly, a rough weekend in sale between four hours sitting in an airport, having to travel out on two different flights, taking four different buses, I think it was, in the end. And in the middle of all of that, a record defeat in uh, Europe, or sorry, a, a first whitewash in Europe and a first whitewash since 2008. Uh, Ulster have had better weekends, I think. And as we mentioned there, Johnny, you were over at the AJ Bell Stadium. How how was the mood sort of in the stadium? Because I think it's, it's obviously easy for us to be sitting at home and saying, this is terrible. But what, did, what were you sort of getting from within the stadium from the Ulster camp? You mean like after the game or during the game? Sorry. Um, both. I mean, I, I know Dan McFarlane was sort of standing up at the, at the top of the stands. I don't know how far away he was from you, but it certainly looked like every time the camera panned to him, he was very, very upset of, for obvious reasons. And I think at one point at the end of the first half, my lip reading skills aren't flawless, but he uh, he turned around to wh- whoever was standing beside him and said, we have nothing, uh, which I thought was pretty accurate to be honest yeah I was actually uh I sat in the room in front of the like sale 
coaches and analysts. So I wasn't anywhere. I wasn't anywhere near Dan. So I got the running commentary um, from the sales side, which I can assure you was very different um, <laughs> to what to what else you were saying. Um, I think it was to me. It seemed like a bit of shell shock, almost like. I think whenever you look at, say, even the body language for the try that came off the uh, horrendously misguided quick line out, like, I think there were a few sort of arms in the air. And I know that Ethan McCoy and Dave Shannon chased back, but um, there were a few players here, I think, looked a bit resigned to the fact that that was going to be a try before they crossed the line. And you never ever see that. Like regardless of when Elster are don't hit their mark, or regardless of whenever Ulster are overmatched, and we've seen that, you know, I sort of point back to that fortnight um with the pro fourteen final as it was followed by um the Toulouse quarter final. whenever they were just playing a better team and it was obvious early on that they were playing a better team. You still had that edge, you still had that bit of spark and like I think this was an Ulster performance that was devoid of that and I think that was the strangest thing for people who were watching in the stadium and certainly people that I spoke to outside the stadium afterwards and even myself watching it because you know that's you know that's eight years that I've been doing this job and I don't remember seeing that even in the likes of 2017 2018 or well 2016 17 wasn't a good season either but you know in those two seasons I still think there was more in the performance like especially in the European Cup like maybe the wasps loss you've got me thinking now have there been any results that have been quite that one-sided against Ulster and not necessarily on the scoreline, but in terms of how the game has progressed. The well, Wasps certainly, won. Certainly, certainly not. Like, that's the most one-sided game from the wrong side of the ledger from Ulster's perspective that I remember in the sense that they just had so little imprint or impact on the game. But just, I think in terms of the flatness and the lack of energy in a European game, when there was an awful lot on the line, like that Wasps game where essentially there was a quarterfinal on the line and it looked like a dead rubber. Like that's, that's the only thing I could probably compare it to. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for me, I've got to say, I think that's possibly their worst ever result in Europe. I mean, you can, you can look at other games in context, like the fact that they got to a final in 2012 and were so soundly beaten. I know Leinster were still are a juggernaut but at at that point they were a a sort of relentless all-encompassing bulldozer whenever it came to to European competition but yeah there was no shame in that result in that Leinster result honestly like I know obviously it's a massive score but like there was no uh it's it's hard for us because obviously that 2012 team was good but like I don't think I don't think it was a false scoreline is what I'm trying Mm -hmm. to say given how good uh 
let, given how good that Leinster team was, it was almost a fair a fair reflection of the difference between the teams on that day. You know, the the fifty six three to Wasps is obviously a completely different era, and that's you know still the biggest their biggest margin of defeat, and it's one where you, it's like, obviously a horrendous golfing class between the two sides. But that's the difference, you know, that was the difference between a professional side and essentially an amateur side. Yeah, you're comparing apples and oranges here where that team was never expected to do anything. This Ulster team has come into the Champions Cup this season as potential contenders, and they've laid an egg against the team that, all right, Seal are a good team. And I thought they did play well on Sunday, maybe not fantastically, but they did play well, give them credit. I mean, I saw a great piece from Charlie Morgan in the uh, in the Telegraph this week, sort of ex- explaining how Gus War and Rob Dupria were, were so good. So, you know, yeah, Seal... Like did- Gus, Gus War especially, like... Um, I think in general for what most people would assume is Seal's second choice halfback Baron. Mm-hmm. Um they were both great, really, really impressive. And well, we don't know what's their second choice halfback pairing. I mean, Rafi Quark would come in ahead of Gus War if he wasn't injured for sure. But I mean, the way Rob Dupree is playing, do you put George Ford straight back in, in ahead of him? Because Dupree's been good for them for I think for sort of four or five games, like yeah. he's making it very hard to be dropped. Well, that's I, why I said most would assume. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my my feeling is, Seal were good, but it, it was just you know Ulster, you know the, the travel is not an excuse. You know the travel maybe accounts for five points either way. It doesn't account for thirty nine nil. So. But it, it just seemed like they never got off the bus. And as you say, by the time you get to that that fifth try where Lowry's trying to spark something and it backfires really badly, like I think you, you just saw that the heads were gone and you wanted... I, I think it, what you wanted more than anything was just some kind of a response. You knew that the game was gone pretty much as, as soon as Dupria went over for that, the try just after half time. That was the point you sort of knew that the game was gone, that 15-0 down. And don't get me wrong, Ulster were extremely lucky to be only 15 points down at half time because they played that badly. But once the once the third try went in just after half time, that was the game gone. And I think from that point all you wanted was for them to have some kind of response. It didn't have to be a comeback and win. It didn't have to be even come back and get a bonus point. It just had to be show something. And that's probably the biggest frustration that I think anyone will have from this game, which is they never even fired a shot. They never even came close to getting on the board. Um, so for me, I'm going to say that is their most disappointing result Definitely in Europe, and I would say probably ever. I mean, we're screaming the bottom of the barrel here for for results that are worse. Yeah, maybe maybe the Gloucester game where Gloucester had like a bonus point after about twenty minutes um, at home, and that was against the side that was only like eight, what eighteen months detached from being the league champions. Um, maybe that because it was at home. 
I think the Wasps game was so disappointing because there was a quarterfinal on the line and they didn't play like it. But as I said, like as I've written this week, like the most striking thing to me about that game was by far just how little Ulster were in it. Even in those games that you're mentioning, there were still periods, small periods, admittedly, some periods when the game had already gone, where Ulster were in the game and doing something in the game. But there was nothing in this game. And that's what's so strange. And that's what struck me as so strange, even watching it. It was like, I don't remember a game that Ulster have had less of an imprint upon. Hmm. Well, t- tactically, like we, we can talk about the fact that they they didn't seem to have any fight. Tactically, where do you think they got it wrong? I mean, I think that, and this is probably not even so much what also got wrong tactically, but this is what Sale did so well because Sale have so many carriers. When we talk about Ulster and their lack of carriers whenever they're missing somebody like Henderson and how missing one big carrier can really knock Ulster because they don't have that many of them. Whereas Sale have so many of them that you have to put yourself in a position to make those double tackles. But then whenever you do that, you leave so much space for the halfbacks to operate. And I think we that's what we saw because the halfbacks really, like as physical as Sale were and as much as Sale won the collisions and Ulster couldn't manufacture any victories in the collisions. The most surprising or surprisingly impressive, if you want to put it that way, thing about Sale was, for me anyway, was their halfbacks really bossing the show. And I think Ulster probably needed to try and find a way to deny them that space because it was they, you know, then those guys were the ones doing the damage as much as, look, Halfbacks look good when the pack look when the when the pack's that dominant. We know that, but uh, that was the big thing for me. And like it, watching the game again, you're probably more impressed with Sale than in real time because whenever you're watching in real time, and your head sort of going a mile a minute of what am I going to what like how, how am I going to write this up? <laughs> like what's what's happening? <laughs> um, but whenever you watch it back, I was probably more impressed with Sale. Um, than at the time, whenever you're watching it, with such a an Ulster focus. I think there's a danger of potentially overanalyzing a game like this, and for, from a from a non-playing perspective, obviously as a player, you have to trawl back through and make sure you take everything you can from it. But um, I think there's only so much you can dwell on a game where pretty much everything went wrong and uh, where. There are very few, if any, redeeming qualities that you can take from it. Um, recording this on, on Wednesday, Andy Wark goes up in front of an independent disciplinary committee tomorrow, Thursday, for uh, his tackle on Manu Tulangi. Interestingly, at the time, and I think a lot of people disagreed with his decision, but referee Matthew Renal decided that it was not worthy of any sanction. It wasn't even a penalty even though Warwick made head-on-head contact with Tulangi. 
Johnny, what was your feeling? Do you think Warwick's headed for a ban? Do you know what? I couldn't even uh, I couldn't even speculate. Like I have no idea because that's what I we have your podcast for to sit on the fence. No, so I have opinions, but my opinion <laughs> my my opinions are based on the inconsistency of the disciplinary process in rugby at the minute. It's not that I just uh, don't have an opinion on it at all. Like we saw with Kane Healy last week, like I don't think you can predict these things. You know, we sat here last Tuesday, was it last Tuesday? Mm-hmm. Um, saying, yep, that's a red card. Um, for Kane Healy, it was the right decision. And then the ban's over, to, or the, he doesn't get a ban because um, the hearing decides that it should have only been a yellow. So genuinely, the, it's lap of the God stuff, these things. I will say that... Um, post-press conference, um, the prospect of Andy Warwick having a ban doesn't seem quite such a disastrous prospect um, with the news that Rory Sullivan should be available this week. Well, we'll get on to that in a second, but just before we do move on to next week, I've got to ask, have you seen the the goings-on in Poe at the weekend where uh, their coach is up in front of a disciplinary committee of his own for essentially grabbing referee Sam Grove White during their Challenge Cup game and uh, <laughs> trying to essentially drag him back to the touchline. Yeah, I saw that on, uh, I just saw it on social media. I didn't see an awful lot of the Challenge Cup at all this week, but uh, it reminded me of the the Thomas Tuchel Antonio Conte handshake from Stamford Bridge earlier <laughs> in the season. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know people aren't here for the, the Spurs references that I shoehorn in every week, but uh, but that's what it reminded me of. <laughs> I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name because it's a very French name. Um, his first name is Sebastian. So, um, but if you if you look that up, I, I find it so interesting that rugby has, and rightly so, I, I I believe. But rugby has such harsh laws whenever it comes to how you approach referees. So, if he's found guilty, I think the low end of the of the scale is 20 weeks or something like that. So really really strict uh punishment for it and again rightly so you you've got to respect yeah. the referee but before Taking we move the on efforts to uh to get christmas off a bit far when you're uh and getting the next 20 weeks off but uh Ray and Take- Pinar, uh, kicked 11 points in that game it should be it should be noted i, I was gonna that say was my, uh, that, that was my panel start of the week before the panel uh had to give away for uh, <laughs> a more thorough dissection of the game than we were expecting. <laughs> Before we move on to this weekend's action, uh, we did speak to Dan McFarland at Ulster's midweek press conference on Tuesday. Here's just a flavour of what he had to say in the aftermath of Sunday's rather harrowing loss in Sale. Yeah, look, we, you know, we've, got a, we've got our own a 39-0 defeat, don't we? It's... Uh, um, you know, it's obviously very, uh, very difficult, and you know, it's not a. You know, when you, when you're you're an honest group like these guys are, and they measure themselves by um, certain standards. We all measure ourselves by certain standards. Um, you know, we look at uh, what we think we uh, we we got wrong, and um, have, have have a good look at how how we need to try and fix that. Um, but. And I'll come back to the point. Like it was 39-0 defeat, and you know, 
we play a lot better than that, can play a lot better than that, so we've got to own that. Um, um, you know, we were bitterly disappointed with uh, our performance, yeah. So, for any of you who would have picked up the Belfast Telegraph this morning, and for those of you who haven't, why don't you get out and get one? But if you did pick up the Belfast Telegraph this morning, you would have seen an exclusive interview from our own Jonathan with Ulster's new loose head prop, Rory Sutherland, the first interview he's given since he joined the province. Johnny, first of all, what did you make of him? I imagine he's a, he's a very interesting guy, given the career he's had. Yeah, absolutely. He's uh was a good interview, I thought. He was uh did didn't seem particularly guarded in any way. He was happy enough to talk about uh Worcester was happy enough to talk about how he uh was a bit gutted that he was only gonna be here for a short amount of time. Um talked about his injury obviously and his hopes that he'll be back uh, this week against La Rochelle. So no, it was good. You know what, that that bit surprised me actually, the fact that he's been here for such a short time and he already feels like he wishes that he could stay. And I, I know he said that he uh, he has family and obviously that influences a lot of his decisions because you don't want to be moving the kids around too much. But for someone coming in on, a, on what he knows is a short-term deal, I, I always find it interesting sort of the psychology of what happens if you get there and you do sort of fall in love with the place? That's just Bally Hackamore, mate. Once you're here, you don't want to leave. Well, what sort of struck you most from the interview? Well, what did you find sort of maybe most surprising or um, what, what were you maybe not expecting from, uh, for him to say? Yeah, like, I mean, I guess I hadn't really thought about the perspective of the family angle to Worcester because... I think whenever you see something like that, you're you're thinking about the playing staff, and then you're thinking about not even just the playing staff, obviously the administrative staff, the stadium staff, and my thought in anything like that is always like, what would it mean? You know, like what would it mean if Ulster went bust? You, do you know, do you know what I mean? It's it's something that's so hard, feels so hard to comprehend. But just thinking about it in terms of like you know, his wife and his kids and what it meant for them having to move again and now likely, well, not likely, now having to move again um, at the end of this season and just uh, how difficult an aspect of pro sport that must be because, like, you know, Roy Sutherland joined Worcester in the summer of 2021. So that's Edinburgh, Worcester, Ulster and yet-to-be-identified new team from the summer of 2021 to the summer of 2023, you know, that's that's a crazy element um, of a professional sports person's life to think about, that uh, two, two young kids will have had to move that many times. Mm. I think the well, we're, we're both massive into our American sports where it's a lot different in America where you're just traded and for the most part, there are exceptions, but for the most part, players don't really get much of a say in it. They're just told, all right, you've got up sticks and relocate your life to this new team because we've traded you. But I think it was Matt Kavasek's wife uh, put a lot on Twitter in the aftermath of the of what happened at Worcester, essentially saying, you know, how much the club meant to them and the fact that it almost saved Matt's career, kind of, because... The, um, I'm, I might be getting my, my facts mixed up a little bit, but I think he didn't really have any other offers. And then Worcester came in and they've been like a family to them. And 
you know, all, all these people associated with the club that are now, you know, having to move, having to relocate, having to change. Like, I know Kvasic's gone to, uh, to Zebra. You've got guys who are going about to France. I, I know uh, Jack Willis is now with uh, with Toulouse whenever Wasps went under. So, you know, guys are having to radically change their lives because of what's happened. And it's credit to them for doing that. But you, you think about the mental toll that it, it takes on a player and um, whenever you, you have to move for your livelihood. So I, I understand why he would uh, why he would want to stay. It would be very beneficial, but unfortunately not not possible. Um, we should point out, by the way, that this is why we are recording on Wednesday. Johnny, uh, Johnny got the chance to interview Rory, and I think uh, we would have been remiss if we tried to record a podcast instead of uh, letting Ulster's new signing give his thoughts. So how do you follow up a 39-0 loss away from home in Europe whenever you've only got four pole games? Well, you welcome the defending champions to Ravenhill for your second pole game. Uh, La Rochelle are the visitors to Ravenhill on Saturday, except we're not even sure it's going to be Ravenhill. I mean, if you're like me and you live out somewhere in the sticks, or I mean, if if you live anywhere in Northern Ireland at the moment, you'll know that uh, conditions have been less than ideal. My driveway is akin to a slip and slide as opposed to the gravel path that it usually is. So we were down at Ravenhill yesterday for the press conference and the covers are on the pitch, but you can even see underneath the covers that the pitch is not in great condition because of the because of the weather conditions that it's been subjected to over the past sort of four or five days. Johnny, you wrote in uh, in the paper this morning that the game could be set for a switch. Do you maybe want to detail what the what sort of the details behind that are for anybody who hasn't seen the story yet? Yeah, well, obviously, as you said, Adam, the covers are uh, are on the pitch, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the pitch isn't frozen underneath, and it doesn't look like it's going to get too much warmer. Um before Saturday certainly if it does get warmer on Saturday then you're very much up against time in terms of how long it would take a, a frozen pitch to thaw um, don't know if anybody has looked into the leaf blower situation as yet uh, <laughs> that remains TBD uh, whether we're, we're going to have a, a zebra situation on our hands they need, um, they need some of those massive heaters that you see them having at Premier League stadiums where they just put them down over the boxes. And I, th- I think that's the kind of thing that you need, just kind of rolling up and down the pitch back and forth. Yeah, well, like Seal obviously had the heaters under their covers, but my understanding of it is there are only so many of these uh, contraptions in the UK. so And it's now too short notice to get one. So... It should be stressed that at present this is a contingency plan because the game cannot be postponed. The game has to be played, basically, otherwise it's forfeited because there's no other place in the calendar for it to go, um, which is not ideal. Uh, I don't know. Again, I know I started the podcast in this, but it's still something much like the Seal game in itself, it's something that I'm still trying to get my head around. The prospect that also could have another home game in the RDS after the 2013 
final. It feels insane. Yeah, so so we should say that the bare facts is that Ulster's contingency plan, if the game cannot be played at Ravenhill on Saturday, is that it would be switched to the RDS Arena, obviously in Dublin, home of Leinster. And we're trying to work out what the day would be. There are some reports that say it might be pushed back to Sunday. Some reports saying that it would be played on Saturday. It could potentially have a different kickoff time in order to allow La Rochelle to go back up to Belfast to get their charter flight home. But we, we don't know some of the exact details at the moment, but all in all, just a less than ideal situation. Yeah, I mean, this side, yeah, I should have said that. There is a precedent, obviously, for moving a game 24 hours, which is what happened um, with the Saracens-Claremont game the year that, if you remember, Ulster played Hardigans in the snow. So mm-hmm. Ulster got their game in, but Saracens didn't get theirs in, but were able to play it then the next day, which I think was actually a Monday from memory. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So, yeah, the, these are the contingency plans that, that are on the table. We're not not saying that this is definitely going to happen, but this is what's being discussed in the event that uh, the weather does not uh, does not play ball over the next couple of days. And obviously, I mean, it's, it's less than ideal anytime you have to move a game, but especially for an Ulster team who are low on confidence at the moment, coming off the back of a first ever shutout in, uh, in European history, you want to be at home in front of your home fans and not have to traipse all the way down to, to Dublin to play your game. So if there was ever a week that you didn't want this to happen, it was probably this week. Yeah, although there could be some psychology to it. You know, who dislikes the RDS as much as Ulster? Munster. <laughs> Who's La Rochelle's coach? This could be playing chess when everyone else is playing checkers. I feel like you're really digging in deep. Like if we could reverse psychology, this thing the whole way back to Ulster will never win at the RDS or something. It's look, it's 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 a best case scenario if the game does have to be moved. Um, obviously, you know Ulster are going to do everything to get the game on at Ravenhill. We're we're not talking here that this is this is the plan A. The plan A is if the pitch at Ravenhill is playable, they will play it. But if it's not possible, then I suppose this is probably the the best option available to them because Windsor Park is is being used on Saturday by by Linfield, and there's no other stadiums in Northern Ireland that you could really uh, you could really take it to. So it's well, they couldn't less... even play the Glentorn game last week, and that was after one day of uh, of a frozen pitch. I would have thought the there would have been a slightly better heating system at Windsor Park than there would be at the Oval. Well, that's true, yes. <laughs> on to matters on, on the game, presuming it, that, that it does go ahead, and we, we have no reason to suspect that it won't go ahead in some guys. Um, I think team selection is a very interesting one. And g- generally, I don't like sort of sitting down and sort of saying, you know, what team do you think Ulster will select? Because... Um, I feel like there's a lot of unknowns that we're not aware of, but this week in particular, whenever you're coming off the back of two games like that, where do you think Dan McFarland's head will be? Do you think he will send out the same 
I, I know he's got enforced changes. James Hume's going to miss out with the HIA. It looks like Ian Henderson and John Cooney are going to come back in. Jacob Stockdale is a doubt, so there are enforced changes that he's going to have to make. But for the most part, do you think he continues to stick with these guys and say, get out of this funk yourselves? Or do you think he makes the changes to try and freshen things up a bit? I think it's probably a mixture of both, Adam, to be honest, because um, I think you want the mixture of fresh voices and you're in a fortunate position in the sense that some of those fresh voices are also some of your most important players in guys like Ian Henderson, guys like John Cooney coming back in. Um, Rory Sutherland, obviously, as well, fingers crossed. And then I think there is part of it where... I don't even know if I would describe it as trust, you know, trusting these guys to get out of the funk, but I think you you want an element of those that were there last week so that you get the reaction. And I know that there's probably people out there saying, yeah, but you said that uh, there'd be a reaction this week after the Leinster game, and that was the reaction. Or maybe even more accurately being you said that the English Premiership wasn't any good and it turned out that they uh, were the best performing league in the But anyway, leave all these things yeah, aside. My, uh, my Nostradamus powers appear to have failed me this week. Oh, sorry, no, I was talking about me, not you. Um... Oh, well, no, I, I also said that that was a game that Ulster should be winning if they were genuine contenders. And I, <laughs> look, I still do believe that, but it, uh, I got my face is probably the best way to put it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I think, and this was talked about a bit at the presser yesterday um, by Ian Henderson, like having that mix of players who were involved and therefore obviously very hurt by what happened last week, a couple of fresh faces, whether it be guys coming back from injury or even just a couple of guys who were on the bench, you know, guys on the bench, like. Tom Stewart was at the presser yesterday. You can't always read too much into that, but, uh, you know, he was speaking. Do you bring Marcus Ray back into the starting lineup? He's been in the starting lineup for a long time now, really beyond um, uh, beyond that game on Sunday. So it wouldn't surprise me in any way to see him. And obviously, recording on a Wednesday, we've still got the... Uh, Andy Warwick situation to uh, to wait and see on that one as well. I mean, Ulster have sort of made a habit of putting up players for press conferences that end up not being in the match day squad. So not definitely... recently, not recently. Now, to be fair, to give them their due, that was more of an issue last season than it has been this season. Um, I do think it's it's an interesting balancing act to walk because. I don't think we can argue. I mean, I probably would have put Marcus Ray in the starting lineup ahead of Matty. But apart from that, it's hard to argue that what Ulster put out last week wasn't their best 15. And how much wiggle room do you have within that to make changes and still retain the quality while also keeping things fresh? Like, I think Tom Stewart coming in would be a good call. I think he has earned a spot in the starting lineup if that's the way that Dan McFarland decides to go. I think obviously Henderson and Cooney coming back in will help and, and Sutherland if, if he plays. But I think there's also, you, you've, you've got to let some of these guys work this out. I mean, I, I think 
there's a danger of making too many changes in sort of a snap reaction and not allowing some of these guys to work their work their way out of this on the pitch. So I'm I'm honestly of the belief that I would like to see the changes kept to a minimum if possible. I think you wanna you wanna try and galvanize the team as much as possible around each other. I think for first first and foremost, I think the interesting selection is where does uh, Ian Henderson go? Do you put him back into the second row or do you put him into the back row? Personally, I'd put him into the second row, but I think it was telling that whenever he had O'Connor and Treadwell fit, he put Henderson into the back row to try and get all of them on the pitch. I mean, the reality, the reality of the situation is you don't have that many players. Like, mm. You don't have that many players, and even in a wider sense, you're never going to recruit that many players. So the players that you have are the players that you have. Like, mm. you know, shy of fielding the A-team and fielding the academy, like, there aren't that many changes that you can make. So the reality of the situation is this is Don McFarland's team. Like you said, you know, that wasn't far off their strongest team that they could have fielded. So I don't think you're, you know, you're not going to see... 15 changes, like put it that way. In one word, are Ulster in must win territory already? No. That's not the answer I thought you were going to say, so I'm going to let you expand. I think it would be disastrous for confidence if they lost, and then it would be very difficult then going to Connacht and welcoming, I don't want to say a resurgent monster, but an improving monster. To Ravenhill on New Year's Day. But like the fact of the matter is, and the fact of the matter that is probably being overlooked here is you only really have to win one game to get in to the last 16. It's the last 16, it's not a quarterfinal. So for all the talk of there's only four games, it's a sprint now, not a marathon. It's the last 16. It's it's not the last eight that it used to be. Like I understand that there were COVID elements at play, draws, and um, walkovers last year, but like teams went through on seven points last year. Like you don't want to rely upon it, obviously. But um and while personally I don't think even Ulster at their very best would go and win at the Stade Marcel de Flander. They're not going to be out to lose on Saturday. And this is sort of the thing that I noticed throughout the sort of European weekend. You know, if, if teams got beat, it was kind of like the old narrative of, uh, well, they're up against it now. Like, they've got three games left to win. Theoretically, one and a couple of bonus points could still get you, could get you through, you know? I still think you want that little bit of a buffer. And all right, I'll agree. Yes, maybe not must win, but I think I think you've really got to be coming out of this with at least a point. You maybe want another one on the board. It's gonna it's gonna be tough to score four tries against La Rochelle. Like I, I completely understand that, but I think if you're coming away from at the halfway stage with only one point on the board, you're looking at potentially getting nothing from the Stade Marcel de Flandre. You're then bringing Sale to Ravenhill. Let's say they 
Best case scenario, they get five points out of that. Is six points enough to get you through? You don't want to rely on that. It might be enough to get you through, but you don't want to be sitting there thinking, yeah, we're we're on the bubble here. I think I think a win this week is very important. If they don't get it, it's not terminal, but I think you make things very, very difficult for yourself if you don't pick up the win this weekend. Oh, like absolutely. I just mean like I mean by definition it's not must win. Um <laughs> fair enough. It should win, but every game should win, you know. And how, how do you think the game will go then? Like, it's, it's obviously, you know, La Rochelle are coming off an absolute massacring of Northampton Saints out in France. They're obviously stacked to the brim with talent. Whenever you look at that team, they've got so many good players. Antonio, Skelton, Kerr Barlow, uh, Dylan Leeds, Bryce Dulan, that back line, Jonathan Dante, who's a who's a quality player in my eyes. You know, they've got talent all over the place, so it's not going to be an easy night for sure. No, I mean you're talking about playing one of the best two teams in Europe, uh, maybe best three teams in Europe. If you want to say to lose your back on form and put them in that bracket, it's a massive ask. It was always going to be a massive ask, but. To me, I think this was shaping up to be the kind of game that we all knew in the sense that, to me, it was shaping up to be the kind of game where Ulster at a low ebb and a big French team comes over to Ravenhill. The weather's stinking. And you see that kind of performance that, you know, that there's a 20-year-old template there for that kind of performance. But, but I think the disappointment more for me is I don't think anybody wanted to be in this position. You know, I think everyone would rather Ulster were coming in off the back of a win in Sale. You maybe didn't expect a win in Leinster, but at least pushing them close. And especially the way the game went in Leinster, you would now look back on it and say you'd like to hope they were coming in off the back of a win over Leinster. And you were going to have one of the best teams in Europe coming to Ravenhill and Ulster trying to bloody their nose. Now you're just sort of looking at it with a bit of fear and trepidation. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think to me, the big thing is just where, where it's going to be played. Like, you know, we say there's a 20 year template for that game. The 20 year template does not involve going to Dublin to play it in the RDS. So <laughs> Ulster have a zero and one record in home games at the RDS arena. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, didn't particularly enjoy their last visit, it must be said. So, I think it's a massive game in terms of the season. I think what Sheer McCluskey said on Sunday is correct. I think if you win this game, then the last two games, you can almost put them behind you and you have a spring in your step going into what are difficult Christmas fixtures, but winnable Christmas fixtures. And I think if you do that, knowing that you then get sale at home, and I'm like, I'm not overlooking sale at home in any way. Like they just beat Ulster by 39 points, but you know that's a game that you can win. And if you do that, you know two two wins. I think we would both be in agreement. Two wins takes you through. Like absolutely. So quickly before we go, prediction: How do you think this game will go on Saturday? I think Ulster will win in Ravenhill and lose in the RDS if I'm allowed to make my prediction in that fashion. (laughs) 
<laughs> your contingency prediction. Yeah, exactly. We're all about <laughs> contingency plans this week. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm I'm gonna say they lose no matter where they play. I'll be the I'll be the diner to end the podcast. Uh if you cannot be at the game or you cannot watch the game, you can follow the game on the Belfast Telegraph website. I will be live blogging it on Saturday evening or whenever it's going to be played. Uh, by the time you listen to this, it might not even be Saturday. In the meantime, you can follow uh, the verdict from Andy Warwick's disciplinary hearing on Thursday. We will have that on the Belfast Telegraph website as well as the team news on Friday afternoon. Uh, and we will have all the best reaction and comment to the game in the Sunday Life on Sunday and then in the Belfast Telegraph on Monday as well. But until we chat to you next week, from Jonathan Bradley. Cheers, thank you very much. It's been a while since we did that, so I thought I'd bring it back just for this week. Uh, and from myself, Adam McAndrew, Neve Campbell will be back next week, and we will see you then on Inside Ulster. <laughs> <laughs>